So hi there, my name is Cassie Prolongo and I'm a science communicator at the Bay Area Environmental Research Institute, which is at NASA Ames. And today I'm speaking with Alfonso de Vila, who works in the exobiology branch also at NASA Ames. Um, so Alfonso, can you just tell me a little bit about your research? Uh, tell me a little bit about being a research scientist. And I suppose what, what draw, drew you in towards space science in general? Uh, well, so yeah, currently I'm a research scientist in the exobiology branch and uh, my research focuses primarily on the question of life beyond Earth, uh, how to search for it, and what could be the implications of, uh, of finding it. And uh, I've, uh, I do quite a bit of research in uh, what is called uh, planetary analog environments. Those are environments on Earth that somehow resemble a uh, environments and other planets and through the study of those analogs we can somehow improve or learn uh, better how to search for life on other planets we can also learn about the limits of life and whatnot so this is my main motivation search for life beyond earth uh, a lot of it using what's known about life on earth uh, i also participate in the development of instruments to search for evidence of life or to measure and analyze samples on, on other planetary bodies in, uh, through missions. And I've also participated in several mission concepts to search for evidence of life on in the solar system. Um, how I got to space research, space um, a lot of people in, these, in, in space sciences, they actually knew they wanted to do space sciences for a long time. I didn't until I actually landed at NASA, which was the result of a series of uh, fortunate or unfortunate events, depends on how you want to see it. Um, I knew from a very early age that I wanted to do science, that I knew for a fact. Uh, I never had any strong inclination for what kind of science. And that is, I think, reflected in my pathway and how, how I got here. I've done... Uh, quite a bit of different types of science. Um, and uh, the way I ended up here at Ames was by chance when I was doing my PhD, I was invited to work on a very specific problem for a very short period of time. Um, but that became a much larger project and an opportunity to come here as a postdoc after I finished my PhD. Up until then, uh, NASA to me was a faraway place that did far away things. I was in Europe at the time. Uh, so I came here because it mm -hmm. sounded cool. And then as, as I got more introduced to the uh, to planetary exploration and specifically astrobiology, I realized that that was the topic I wanted to dedicate my scientific to. So uh, at that point I decided to stop trying different things in science, focus on this um, and, uh, and here I am now. How did you, you said that you wanted to, you always knew you wanted to go into science. So how, how did you know that you wanted to go into, what, what spark, was that something as it's, a kid that you thought this was really cool or what? Yeah, I think it's a serious, a combination of things. I, I, I have these distinct memories of being a, a, a kid uh, very early on and, and, and try and, and really wanting to understand things or at the very least, being very uncomfortable when I didn't understand something or not really liking uh, realizing that I actually didn't understand 
I think. And so trying to understand how things work seems to be a very early drive motivation for me. Uh, Apple with uh, specific moments in my early education, I think uh, certain teachers in school who sparked an interest, who revealed uh, an aspect of science that, uh, that was to me surprising or new. I think the combination of things was uh, adding up. And at, at some point in middle school or high school, I realized, A, uh, I like science, B, I don't like anything else. That kind of narrows it down. Um, and then I don't know, I guess it was a combination of, of these motivations to learn things, to, to understand how things work. Uh, and then with, I guess, uh, personal uh, motivations to learn new things and experience explore new avenues that brought me, uh, drove me to choose a science career at a university that was uh, outside of where my family lived, uh, then choose a PhD degree in a different country, eventually choose a postdoc position in a different continent. I guess it all comes down to learning new things, trying to understand how things yeah. work and expand my lenses. That was the foundation. So what kind of science actually did you get involved with? Because space science planetary wasn't the original. Now that's what you're in. But were you in a different, were you doing some kind of biology work or chemistry? What, what exactly kind of science yeah. work? The, the prime, the, my undergrad was on marine science. Oh, wow. And I think, yeah, the motivation for that uh, was probably equal amounts of me wanting to leave my family mm -hmm. home and it sounds really cool. Um, I, when I was looking at options, I knew it was going to be biology or something like this. But marine sciences happened to be a very fairly recent degree in Spain, which is where I was living at the time. Uh, only a handful of places in Spain offered that degree, and it was uh, portrayed as a as a broad. Um, degree on marine sciences that included biology, geology, chemistry, physics. So it sounded like the perfect match for somebody who wanted to do science, but didn't really want to do anything specific in science, just do science for the sake of science. So, and it happened to be as far away as, it was on the opposite side of the country with respect to where my family lived. Not that I had any problems with my family, uh, but the idea of living home and trying something new was appealing to me. So that was my undergrad, it proved to be Inside, in inside was a good decision because astrobiology is also a very multidisciplinary, broad, broad scope science. So, uh, without meaning, uh, meaning to, I actually, uh, it was good training for me for what I would become mm -hmm. later on. Uh, but then I moved from marine sciences in Spain to a PhD on biomagnetism in Munich, which is nothing to do one with the other. Uh, biomagnetism had to do with understanding how animals use the magnetic field of the earth when they migrate or as a homing, uh, as, a, as, a, as a cue for homing and orientation. Uh, and the overlap with marine sciences was almost nothing. It just happened to be a, a mentor that I had in Spain who knew a professor in Germany who was looking, looking for a PhD student. So I guess, again, the same theme of the opportunity of doing science in a new place, learning new things, expanding horizons, seemed to be a good match, and I decided to move to Germany. I think what I, 
what I like most about hearing about your journey so far, um, of which I knew some of it, but I didn't know the extent, uh, is that quite often in people who do humanities, which is what I decided to do, there's no linear pathway towards how you get from point A to point B in your career progression. And in talking to scientists, normally there's some kind of career pathway that they would like to follow, at least in terms of that. But what I like hearing about what you're talking about is that you try different things. You have this explorer mentality where you were open to being a bit more generalized science. There was no linear path that you took per se. And I think that's really, that's a nice positive take on science that there doesn't necessarily have to be a, a linear pathway. You can try different avenues and it just opens up this whole different horizon, so to speak. It was, yeah, it was, it's a science for the sake yeah. of science. I know that at some point, as I was, I was as, as becoming from a student to an early career researcher, one thing that I remember thinking about, not as a concern, but something that was in the back of my mind is, what am I going to do for the next 50 years? Um, I certainly didn't want to get stuck into something that would be become a repetitive job. So I, I a part of the exploration and these trying different things, I think, was trying to search for questions that would keep me busy for a while. And I think that was a big a big reason of why I ended up here at NASA and decided to stay here is because you can get bigger than the questions that we're asking here at NASA. Uh, what's the origin of life? Is there life else, anywhere else? Those questions require a lifetime, if not several lifetimes, to answer. And, I, and that realization when I landed here at Ames uh, was uh, foundational for me to decide I'm going to stay here and, and, and I finally found a question I can I'm happy to dedicate 50 years of my life to try to solve. That's that's really cool and what's really interesting is that you started out with marine science and now you've sort of shifted gears if you like and there your your research I'd like for you to talk a little bit about this is you deal with uh, some of the driest most arid environments on earth right. <laughs> so you went from a very a very wet environment to a very rugged and arid environment. Uh, Antarctica, uh, Chile's uh, Atacama, I think, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, Atacama's Detler, uh, where you're looking for these microbes. So could you talk a little bit about your research and doing, conducting this field work in these sort of arid environments? Yeah, I, I got involved in field work primarily because the person who became, who was my postdoc advisor at AIMS, Chris McKay, uh, He'd been a big promoter and proponent of analog field research for many years. Uh, and so I pretty much fell into that school of thought, so to speak. And uh, I had this unique ability to speak Spanish by virtue of being born in Spain. And Chris thought, you would be an asset in Chile. Uh, so I was exposed to very early on in my postdoc the field work in Chile. And uh, I was fascinated. I had done field work before, uh, not as a, as, a, as a research topic, but as a field assistant for other people in some remote and extreme conditions. And I actually li I had liked the, the, uh, the human challenge side of that. I like the, uh, what, how much you can learn about yourself by being in, in those extreme environments for long periods of time. Not quite as a research topic because it was a different story for me. But then uh, here there was an opportunity to do the science I wanted to do combined with the type of field activities that have been a challenge for me and, and, and an interesting challenge. So 
it was it was a good match uh, and it was also a very good way for me to get introduced to concepts that in astrobiology are important extreme environments uh, habitability uh, fundamental properties of life that maybe are only expressed or really manifested in environments where life is uh, present in very low abundances. Uh, it really teaches you what is fundamental, fundamental foundational to life. Um, and so slowly I started to get, uh, to learn more about those topics through field work. I also started learning new things about uh, life on Mars or uh, the habitability of Mars that maybe hadn't been considered until then in, uh, in, 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 in models of life on Mars. And that became an also, it became uh, another motivation point to me, for me to continue studying these environments. Um, again, it's the same topic, new places, new experiences, learning new things, new questions, uh, trying to answer questions. I just happened to be lucky enough that the, every time I was exposed to a new question or a new challenge or a new place, uh, it was somehow related to something I'd done in the past. And so when I look back, there seems to be a, a linear connection between the things I've done and where I am today. Uh, but but no, I know that it was mostly chance that brought me there. Somehow uh, I've managed to take advantage of my previous experience and feed forward into my next experience. So, but yeah, uh, analog research has been uh, very important for me and uh, it obviously has offered me the opportunity to go to places on the planet that uh, otherwise I would never been able to. I visit. mean in a sense that's sort of your the, the progression is almost like the scientific process right you're taking in new information and that changes sort of your your outputs your hypothesis based on on the new information that you received um, and so you it's almost continuously it's, it's a continuous process. And as we go through with science and new things are uh, learned, you also, in a sense, with your research and with your own career, it's like new things happen and that's, you've started to see new things happen from it. Um, I wanna talk a little bit about one of your seminars actually, just because I think it, it kind of ties in really nicely to your research. One of them was called, unfortunately, I wasn't at Ames at this point, um, but I have read about it and I need to watch the, the seminar series, but it was called How to Search for the Second Genesis of Life. How did this idea sort of manifest? Um, and is this like a central, it sounds like it's a central caveat to the research that you're doing currently. Yeah, the, uh, the C, uh, again, was uh, conversations with Chris about, I mean, what, what let me backtrack for a second. When I came to Ames, as I said earlier, astrobiology was completely foreign to me. Uh, so I, I really started from scratch in terms of astrobiology. I had to learn, read a lot about everything, astrobiology or planetary sciences, just to get up to speed with where things were. It took me a couple of years. And so uh, uh, a lot of uh, my uh, learning curve involved talking to Chris, uh, obviously, uh, he's an excellent source for anything astrobiology related. And so I was lucky to be able to talk to him and, and get exposed to some of the ideas that he was playing with. And one that struck with me was uh, this concept of a second genesis of life. Um, that was interesting in itself, the concept. Uh, but then it became not only a, an interesting idea, but I think it became 
a, uh, a baseline or a, a way to really uh, organize my thinking around the question of searching for other planets. Um, and it comes down to the following. It comes down to asking the question, what do I, what do I mean when I, when I say that I, I'm interested in searching for life on other worlds? What does that really mean? Science is uh, searching for something for the sake of searching for something. is not a scientific activity. That's an exploration activity, which is fine. Nothing wrong with this. But science is not about just doing things for the sake of doing them. We do science because there are observations that are not explained, and we devise experiments and hypotheses to explain those observations. And then we collect the data, and then we interpret the data, and hopefully we can explain what was unexplainable before. That's science. And so when you think about the search for evidence of life in that frame, you have to ask yourself, why are we searching for life? What is the question or the questions that we're trying to answer? And there are obviously many questions that one can try to answer, uh, which demand uh, to find evidence of life on another planet. But the foundation, the, fun the fundamental questions that we want to answer is life co a common cosmic phenomenon, or is are we the only example of life in the universe? Is there a theory of oh. generalized to any organism, uh, or there is, or is and what are the, pro the fundamental properties of life? Those questions, which to me are the interesting questions about life, uh, to answer those questions, we first require that we find not only life on another planet, but that we find life that is unrelated to us. And this is a very, it's a very fine distinction. Somebody, some people might claim, might say it's an academic distinction, but I think it's a fundamental distinction because uh, you cannot just assume that by virtue of life being present on another planet, it immediately implies that that form of life is unrelated to us, that is completely independent from us and originated independently from us. Because there is something uh, called uh, planetary transfer. We are constantly exchanging spit, so to speak, between planets. We're constantly moving planetary materials around and there is a non-zero possibility that life moves around, especially over short, relatively short distances, like the distances between planetary bodies in the solar system. And in fact, people have developed models to estimate the likelihood that life might have transferred between planets. And it's not a trivial probability. It's, it's actually, it can be, uh, it, it could be fairly common. And so you cannot, in, uh, you cannot assume that if you find evidence of life on, on a place like Mars, for example, that immediately implies that life originated on Mars. It could have been transferred. Uh, in fact, we could have come from Mars originally. And that's important because if it turns out that we find evidence of life on Mars and we establish that somehow we are related, that doesn't really tell us much about how common life is in the universe. It tells us that life can commonly move around over short distances, but it doesn't tell us whether the origin of life is a is a common is a is a common phenomenon, but if we go to Mars and we actually find evidence of life and we can establish it on us, that means that life is a common phenomenon in the universe. Because if it happens, if it happened twice independently in the same solar system, very likely it happened many times in many different solar systems. And so, 
that was at the beginning the motivation for me to try to understand uh, what does it really mean when I want to search for find evidence of life on other planets? And then how do I actually tell whether evidence of life on Mars represents a second genesis or a common ancestor? And this has been something that has kept me busy for a number of years now uh, because it's not a trivial problem um, for, not for a number of reasons. So I'm trying to finish, finish up a paper that addresses that very topic as far as I'm able to address it. Hopefully uh, I can submit it for publication soon. Uh, but it's it's been a, a really interesting subject. Um, it has had the side effect of forcing me to really try to understand life in very fundamental, in a, a, a very fundamental level. Uh, because when you're trying to imagine what might distinguish us from a second genesis on Mars, uh, you really need to scratch the bottom of the barrel of what it be, means to be alive in order to uh, tease out what might be different between us and them. And so it's been useful, it's been a very useful exercise. So it's interesting because in, in similar to your own career trajectory of looking for these sort of connections and links that sort of also started to manifest in your own research, looking for these sort of connections and links. Um, I don't think that's coincidental. <laughs> I think that's definitely something that happens when you have a particular set of skills or an openness or a mindset. Um, an interdisciplinary science, I think, can really bridge these gaps um, as opposed to just a very narrow focus on one avenue. Having interdisciplinary skills and working with interdisciplinary colleagues is definitely to your betterment, it sounds like. Um, is there anything that surprised you? It far? is useful. It... Sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say that it is, it certainly is a useful uh it being having some uh, an interdisciplinary background is useful it also puts you constantly in a very uncomfortable position because by virtue of being multidisciplinary you're really not an expert on anything uh so constantly you have to really uh learn you're constantly learning things you know i i I, when I was in marine sciences, I, I studied biochemistry, but just to the level that it was necessary for me to do marine sciences. I'm not a biochemist at heart, so I really have to study hard to really understand a lot of aspects of biochemistry that you don't learn as an undergrad. You only learn as a professional researcher in biochemistry. And often I cannot make it there, so I rely on others that are more experts in the topic to, to learn exactly what, what's going on. So, and it's a very uncomfortable position to be as a scientist uh, because uh, in today, the way science works today, it, it, I think it, it rewards uh, expertise. Mm, specialization uh, almost. It, yeah, it's, uh, science is such a competitive field that uh, rarely they, your colleagues will rarely pass on the ability to tell you you're wrong, uh, you know? Uh, when you write proposals, you have to demonstrate that you understand, you master the topic uh, uh, to a high degree of expertise. And that's not something that comes easily to people who are multidisciplinary by nature. Uh, so it, um, it's good for some things, but it, it can be a challenge for other things. 
it, it's interesting to hear. I was going to ask about what surprised you, but I want to stay on this for a few more minutes. It's interesting to hear you say that um, because coming from a humanities background, again, we are very much people who are interdisciplinary. And I've always found a fondness for astrobiology because I thought this is an area where you are all interdisciplinary working together. It's a collective. There's a free range of ideas almost. I can, I can definitely take your point to see, okay, you're not specializing, but I almost feel that there's a positive note in that, that people are challenging one another and that can raise the profile of, of science. I, do you think that that's maybe helped some of your science aspects? Um, more than help, I, I just think it's a necessary evil mm -hmm. or to move astrobiology forward. We will, we will not move astrobiology forward by fo focusing on specific questions. Uh, moving astrobiology forward requires connecting dots, many dots Some that sometimes they don't seem to be connected, but eventually they, they're more than, more often than not, they are connected. Uh, you cannot also do it yourself. You cannot be an expert on everything. Uh, but uh, so you, I think the ideal combination for astrobiology is a combination of is a team is a combination of it's a teamwork where you have people who are really good at really they're ex very expert uh, in, in specific fields and then others that are able to ask the questions that connect the dots uh, it, 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 it's not an enterprise that some that a, a single individual can really tackle and so uh, you, you really need both I think the expert is in a much more comfortable position uh, because uh, you really just have to focus on something that you really know very well. Um, but and, and, and the person who's trying to connect the dots, as we discussed, is a bit in, in an uncomfortable position. But both are sides of the same coin and both are necessary. And astrobiology cannot happen with, with just one one of them, I think. I agree with you. Um, I think both are definitely necessary. You need to have these creative, bigger pictures, and then people who are very focused on a select area to kind of bring it right. together. Um, so, speaking of connectivity, how has your how is your your world or your work really shifted now that we're in this COVID sort of climate where we're not we're not we're talking right now through the computer. I would prefer as a communicator to talk to you in person, but this is one way that we can connect and continue on. How has this shifted your work? Probably that has to do with uh, being a scientist that is on the multidisciplinary side of things. It, it hasn't really affected me um, because a lot of what I do has to do with learning, uh, reading, writing, um, and I don't. I can do that in any environment where I have access to information. And and these days, uh, my home is my office. Just as uh, as long as I have access to the internet, and I can communicate with colleagues, it doesn't really affect me. It would affect me uh, if it would prevent me from doing, for example, field work over long periods of time, uh, because uh, part of my research relies on data collected in the field, and we have to go to the field. Uh, once every year or so to collect data, service instruments, and so that would be a problem. But I don't expect 
the situation is is going to be uh, it's going to be impacting field work for 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 years. Uh, so personally, hasn't I haven't been impacted. In fact, I, I, it's been a good opportunity for me to consolidate ideas, write them down, uh, try to think uh, through some of these problems that require me to read books and papers and, and understand things at a fundamental level. So um, in that sense, it's, it hasn't really been a big impact for me. Do you think that it's important for scientists on top of all their other their work that they're doing to also be communicators as well, or at least being involved in some level of science communication? I, I do. I, I think it is important. Um, the, I, at any level, not just science level, I think education is important. Uh, and to me, communication, communicating science is a way of educating. Uh, the, and in that sense, I don't know only think it's important, but it should be mandatory. Uh, and I find myself uh, as a civil servant that uh, is not only something I want to do, but it's something I have to do. And so I, as much as sometimes you wish you didn't have to call in that extra telecon to talk to a bunch of intern students to uh, explain them things about astrobiology, you know, sometimes you get caught up in your research and, and uh, the, the proposals that you have to review and whatnot. I do force myself to do it because it's important. Uh, sometimes it's also an, not an altruistic activity, but it's a selfish one communicating complex thoughts and complex ideas in a simple in simple terms forces you to actually uh, understand them uh, intimately uh, you know when I try when I speak to public to the public and to uh, people who have don't have a, bi a biological background I cannot just go on and on talking about a second genesis of life without explaining things at a very fundamental level and if I explain them fundamentally I don't understand them fundamentally and so uh, I also see it as a selfishly, I also see communication as something I can do to improve the way I do research. And it's interesting because you're, I, I'm assuming that your native language is not English, it's probably Spanish. Do you speak any other languages and do you have to communicate or do you normally communicate in both Spanish and in English? Because that can also pose a series of challenges too. Oh, yeah. I, uh, English is my scientific language. I have actually, it's, it's, it's not easy for me to communicate science in Spanish uh, because uh, primarily my research, my, my pro professional career has been in English. Uh, um, since I left Spain, I've communicated professionally in English. So sometimes certain topics, certain ideas, certain words, uh, I have to think about it so before I can translate them into Spanish. So it comes easily, science comes easily in English. Uh, other activities, everyday activities, uh, Spanish uh, is, 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 is an easier language. So it's an interesting thing. What I found though is that I cannot, I cannot possibly include a third language in my head. There's not enough room there. I have to give up one of two languages. I used to speak other languages, but uh, apparently I have to give up that memory space is uh it's, it's either only spanish or english was it was it german before just out of curiosity was it german 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 i i did learn german at a very basic level uh but in spain uh, there are also other languages and i was i lived in different parts of spain where they spoke different languages and i learned uh some of those those languages even in school uh but i found 
that uh, most of most of that is gone now. Uh, it's been replaced by something else. So it's an interesting process. Uh, learning new languages. You never know. You go and if you go back to Spain and have to do a presentation, maybe in the deep recesses of your unconscious brain, it'll you'll remember some terminology or something that might spring up again. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's an, it's always an interesting experience, and, and English does come out in a, in a Spanish uh, seminar. So, but that's okay. Uh, it's part of the it's part of the process. I think it's also important to show, especially kids, uh, two things. One is that. Uh, for better or worse, English is the language of science, and if you don't learn English, you're not going to be a scientist today. Uh, kids need to understand that, especially non-English-speaking kids. And also, they need to understand that it's okay to uh, make mistakes when you speak different languages. You don't have to be worried about it. You can still communicate ideas. So I like speaking to Spanish uh, audiences. Uh, there is always interesting feedback. So you talked a little bit about um, your mentor, Chris McKay, and how he's helped to shape your, your career path. Um, what sort of advice would you like to give, maybe even to your past self, um, now that you know what you know now going through your, your career progressions and all these different changes that has happened? What sort of things could you tell to even early career, mid-career people or your past self? Well, well, there are you can always preach a lot of different things. Um, I guess there are a couple of them. One that, that was taught to me, a couple of things that was taught to me that I embraced them and 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 I think they were important for me. One was be honest, don't cheat. You know, uh, sometimes things look bleak and science is very competitive. Sometimes uh, you can find uh, yourself in very dark places because of lack of funding, lack of opportunities, uh, but uh, but cheating is not the option, the alternative, be honest. Uh, the other one, uh, which I think explains a lot of what we just spoke about in the last 45 minutes or so, is if you want to be a good scientist, the most important question is always why. Why you're doing what you're doing? Why are you asking that question? Why are you doing this experiment? Why are you doing that experiment that way? This is something that uh, somebody who was a mentor to Chris McKay told me, uh, and so I can tell for a fact that it's influenced at least two generations of astrobiologists, that very simple idea of always ask yourself why, and I think it's it's very important. Any sci every scientist should always have this question in the back of their head. Um, the one that I've experienced myself, that it's been, you know, something that I would try to, um, it's not something you can teach others. I guess it's something that you can use to reflect on uh, a young scientist can reflect on uh, if, when, when, the, when that person is trying to decide whether science is something they want to do. Uh, and to me, is if you like, if you, if, if what motivates you is science for the sake of science, if that's what motivates you, if, if all you want to do is learn things, if you have this nagging need to understand how things work, then science is a very good option for you. Uh, if your motivation is something else, uh, recognition or uh, exposure uh, or being known for some amazing discovery, do science, uh, but, but the chances of you making the wrong decision, the wrong decision uh, increases. So really, I guess the message is really dig deep and uh, 
try to understand why do you want, why is it that you want to do a science career? Uh, and if it's something as fundamental as I just continue because that's the that's the fuel that you're going to need to keep going as a scientist. Uh, if your motivation is something else, uh, maybe reconsider. Yeah. So one thing that I want to, I think we'll probably end on this, this question. Um, something I've been asking some of the scientists, it's a little bit different maybe, but are, what, is there anything that you wish that you could clarify? Um, journalists, media people, obviously they're, they're very much uh, trying to get these stories out as quick as possible. Sometimes they get it right, sometimes they get it wrong. Um, is there anything that you feel that you wish that you could see that maybe expanded on, or if there's just one thing that you could tell the general public that you wish people could understand with your research? What, what do you think that would be? Um, well, the I guess the place where we still fall short as a as a scientific community is in trying to convey why it is important, why the science we do is important, um, which goes well beyond the scientific reasons why we might want to search for life on another planet. You know, who cares if life is common in the universe? I care, but not other people necessarily care. I don't think that is the reason why, uh, as a society, we should be searching for, or we should be doing this type of science. There are, there are scientific reasons to do it, but not as a society. Personally, as a society, I would like to see us moving beyond man-made or human-made borders and restrictions. And nature, not as a, as a place where things are kept in boxes, or between lines, but it's something that where things are connected. And that connection doesn't stop at the planet level. It continues beyond the planet. Uh, we know that, astrophysicists know that, uh, heliophysicists know that, planetary scientists know that, and astrobiologists should know that. But we don't do a good job at explaining how astrobiology can help society think beyond borders and, uh, and and to be more inclusive. Uh, if, I guess, a way I sometimes put it when I talk to the public is if you were to look at life on Earth and you were you were to plot the axis uh, of things that are uh, different in the y-axis and different in the, in the x-axis, and you get every life, every form of life on Earth, you will get a huge this cloud of dispersed data points, things that are very, very big uh, and move very slowly, things that are very small and move very quickly, you would create a huge space of diversity. But then the moment we find life on another planet and we plot it on the same diagram, all that diversity cloud becomes a very tiny point here. And then the life on another planet becomes the second reference point. And that gives you perspective and that tells you that everything we consider different, diverse, and even rare sometimes in our planet is actually not that different and not that diverse and not rare at all. And so maybe that way we can start to see social issues 
that we think separate as, as something that is actually uh, something that is not that different. Uh, it makes us, they, they make us dif uh, very similar entities. Uh, yeah. And I think that's a perspective that astrobiology can provide to society. And, then, and, and, and I wish we, we did a better job at conveying this idea uh, beyond what the scientific reasons to do astrobiology. I think that's a that's a great way to end this. Um, science and society and continuing astrobiology and ways of making links and continuing science communication is just incredibly important and it's super crucial. Thank you very much for your time today, Alfonso. Um, this yes. was really cool. It was really interesting learning so much about all the different bits that you're working on. And I can't wait to read more and learn more about what you're doing in the future. Great, my pleasure and thank you for the interview.